Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. All right, we are continuing our study here in the Gospel of Mark. If you would, please turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We are in verses 53 through 65 this morning. If you do not have a Bible, we got Bibles in the back there for you. That's our gift. We'd love for you to take that home. As you turn there, let me review from last Sunday. We witnessed Judas Iscariot bring an army of people to arrest Jesus. And we discussed the signal that Judas gave to the Romans and also to the religious leaders and how it was a kiss. We witnessed how Jesus handled himself during the arrest, during the rest. And then we saw how Jesus, or excuse me, Peter, how he lost control during the whole thing. And it's in the arrest of God himself. I mean, think about that. Mankind arrests God. Pretty amazing just to think about that. Uh, Jesus proved to us during this arrest, though, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he is the Son of God. Remember what he said? He said, Ego e me, right? I am. I am that guy. Um, those words are just so powerful coming out of, out of the mouth of Jesus that he sent 1,000 Marines and Navy SEALs and politicians and all the religious muckety-mucks flat on their back. And, and he did it without lifting a finger. And if that were not proof enough, Jesus goes on to prove his humanity. So he proved his deity, and now he proves his, hand, his humanity by saying, I am again, this time letting them know that he is the one that they're searching for. It's his name on the arrest warrant. And then we finished up last week talking about what seemed to be, at first, a, a trivial detail, a detail about an outsider getting caught up in the drama of this whole thing. Um, he was stripped of his clothes. He ran away naked, no doubt trembling in fear. And we learned that that man in that narrative is no trivial detail at all, really. It's instead a picture of you and I standing before a holy God, ashamed, naked, and terrified because of our sin. That man is a reminder, really, of how good we've got it um, if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. <coughs> because if we have, we are clothed with garments of Christ's righteousness. We no longer stand naked and ashamed in front of him. Um, and that really leads us to today's text. Uh, this morning, we begin the trials of Jesus Christ. Last Sunday, I mentioned that the Jews broke 22 of their own judicial laws with the arrest and the trials of Jesus. I gave you the top 10, uh, the most rec recognizable ones that were broken. We're going to see those along with some others in the text today as well. But before we begin, I wanted to touch on what the scripture has to say about justice, because that's what we're talking about today. Um, 
Israel received their justice system from God himself in the Mosaic law. They were proud of their jurisprudence. They, uh, they had a right to be proud. I mean, look at this. Deuteronomy 16, 18. God says, appoint judges and officials for your tribes and all your towns that the Lord your God is giving to you. They are to judge the people with righteous judgment. Do not deny justice or show partiality to anyone. Do not accept a bribe, for it blinds the eyes of the wise. Twist the words of the righteous. Pursue justice and justice alone, so that you will live and possess the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. So world history has shown us time and time again how God has blessed the Jews and their judicial system. Justice is very, very important to God. And so it's obviously it's important to the Jews as well. Uh, the nation of Israel, very detailed about how their justice system works. It's similar to that of the, of the United States. And rightfully so, the, the U.S. followed their lead. And, and I want to mention three things here before we dive into the trials of Jesus, because three big things, three major things must take place for a trial to be legitimate. Number one, it's got to be a public trial. No private trials, no secrets, no bribes. Everything is supposed to be out in the public. Number two, the right of defense. The defendant has the right to an attorney. You've all seen an episode or two of uh, the TV show Law and Order or Blue Bloods. You guys have never seen those TV shows, <laughs> ever. Okay, thank you, Jim. Thank you. Right? If you can't afford attorney, what? We're going to get you one, right? One's going to be provided for you. And then number three, you need evidence in a trial. Um, and usually with a, uh, a capital case, it, it needs to be more than one witness. So those things remain with us today as the basic guarantee of, of an honorable court in our society. And the second thing I want to mention here is the seriousness of perjury from a Jewish perspective. God makes it crystal clear he does not tolerate liars, uh, especially lying under oath in court. He actually says it twice in this, this passage from Proverbs. Let me show you this. Proverbs 6.16. So the Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him. Number one, arrogant eyes. Number two, here we go, a lying tongue. Three, hands that shed innocent blood. Four, a heart that plots wicked schemes. Number five, feet eager to run to evil. Number six, once again, a lying witness who gives false testimony. And number seven, one who stirs up trouble among the brothers. So he says he does not like liars two times in those passages. Um, and then God's word goes on to tell us what happens to liars. Proverbs 19, verses 5 and 9 a false witness, a liar, a perjurer will not go unpunished. The one who utters lies will not escape. Escape what? Escape the judgment of God. And then verse 9 goes on to say, who, one who utters lies will perish. That's not good, my friend. That's not good at all. So why does God detest liars? Well, because the, ju the, the, the judicial system, the justice system itself really is a reflection of the Lord's righteousness and justice. 
And when we pervert justice, we pervert the very heart of God, the very character of God. So coming forward as a false witness was so serious to the Jews that if you lied in court, you would receive the punishment and the sentence of the person you're trying to help convict. So in other words, if you lied about someone in a murder case, you yourself would pay the death penalty. And not only that, if you were a true witness, and this is a legitimate case, and you're on a, on a murder case, you were also, and the man is convicted because you saw this man murder someone, you were also a part of the execution. So as a witness to the court, you were one of the ones to throw the first stone. Y'all with me? Serious stuff, right? So in other words, the witnesses in a fair and upright trial were also the executioners. So all that to say this, you wanted to be very careful about your testimony. Because if you lied, you wouldn't only be guilty of lying, you would be guilty of murder as well. So all of those laws from a Jewish perspective, it protected themselves from perjury. Now, keep all that in mind here as we move forward into the arrest of Jesus, or actually the trials of Jesus. So let me give you a big picture of what's happening because Mark's gospel only focuses on a small part of it. Jesus' trial includes two major phases. You've got the Jewish trial, and you've got the Gentile trial. So let's take a look at these. Um, the Jewish trial composed of three different parts. You've got a trial before Annas. We're going to meet him. You've got a trial before Caiaphas, and also a trial before the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish trial. There's actually three trials in each one. From there... Jesus is sent to the secular authorities. He's sent to the Romans. Jesus is tried before Pilate. He's tried before King Herod Antipas. And then he's tried again before Pilate, but really that's, that's the court of public opinion. So Jesus faces, in all of that, guys, he faces six trials. And in each trial, he's presumed guilty. So that's the big picture. Let's get specific now with Mark's gospel. Mark is going to focus in on the, the first and second part of the Jewish trial here. So the major players today, obviously we got Jesus, we've got Caiaphas, who's the high priest, we've got the Sanhedrin, which are the, the religious leaders, and then we have a little bit of Peter, all right? So if you like the TV show, Law and Order, or Blue Bloods, you're going to love today's episode, <laughs> all right? So let's stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word, please. Mark chapter 14, verses 53 and following. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes assembled. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they couldn't find any. For many were giving false testimony against him, and the testimony did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I'm going to destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. And yet their testimony did not agree, even on this. And then the high priest stood up before them all, and he questioned Jesus. 
He said, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and he did not answer. And then again, the high priest questioned him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and he said, why, why do we still need witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What's your decision? And then they all condemned him as deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him and to beat him, saying, prophesy. The temple servants also took him and slapped him. And this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Father, the psalmist writes, I am weary from grief, so strengthen me through your word. Father in heaven, many of us, most of us are weary from grief, and we do pray that you would strengthen us now through the word of God, that you would give us the wisdom and the knowledge on how to handle those things that weary us at the foot of the cross. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Have a seat, guys. Thank you. Let's take a deeper look here at verse 53. So they led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes assembled. So Mark jumps right into the first stage here of the religious part of Jesus' trial. Luke's gospel tells us that they gathered first in the high priest's house. Luke is referring to the previous high priest. His name is Annas. Now, don't let the terminology fool you here. Annas is the high priest, yes, but just because he has that title, it does not mean that he loves God, because he does not. If, I mean, he hates God, and we're going to see this. His actions prove it. The very fact that Jesus is arrested and not placed in a holding cell until the morning, that should send off some alarm bells. I mean, how odd, how odd would it be if you were arrested for something that you didn't do, and the police officer took you to the judge's home? instead of the police department. Would that make you just a little bit nervous? Yeah, of course it would. We, we know that's against the law. Jewish law states this, trials could only be conducted in what was called the hall of judgment. That is obviously inside the temple itself. And yet, here they are. They're in Annas's home. And not only are they at his home, but it's also somewhere possibly between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. So Jesus' trial is the only recorded instance of a Jewish trial being conducted at night. So why are they conducting an illegal trial at night? Well, because the Sanhedrin, the religious people, they're all afraid of the crowds. We've talked about this many, many times over the past couple years here as we've gone through Mark, they did not want the public to know. If the public finds out what's going on behind the scenes, then thousands of witnesses are going to come forth in Jesus's defense, and they can't have that. So Annas, even though he has the title of the high priest, he's not really, he's more of a mob boss, literally. That, that, that's, that's the way this thing is run. Anna served in this role as the high priest for about eight or nine years. The Romans removed him. We don't know why, 
But over time, five of Annas' sons held the office as well. Caiaphas holds it now. Now, all of this is very interesting because God intended the office of the high priest to be a lifelong position. It's similar to that of, the, of our Supreme Court justices. <laughs> but by the first century, it was so filled with politics, it was just up for sale, you know, to the highest bidder at, at any time. So verse 54, Peter enters the picture now. Peter followed Jesus at a distance, right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. So we see that G, uh, Peter's guilty conscience got a hold of him here. Somehow, some way, Peter turns around after running away from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Notice that phrase there, he followed him at a distance. Why is Peter following at a distance? Well, because Pete, he's in the very presence of all the people that he was just trying to kill an hour ago. Remember that? He pulls out that, that very dull, sissified knife. Now, look, we, we've been pretty hard on Peter over the past several weeks, rightfully so. Uh, Peter's mouth is a problem. But here in verse 54, we also see Peter's heart. This is a bold move, isn't it? Peter joins other people. He's trying to fit in. He's trying to keep himself warm. Now, keep in mind, this has to be comical. How awkward Peter must have looked and acted in the courtyard with, uh, with all these people, all the servants of the high priest. I mean, can't you just see Peter trying to mingle with the temple police who just arrested Jesus? Hey, how's it going? Hey, hey. How are those cardinals? How awkward that must have been. Now pause. Peter followed Jesus at a distance. The question, the obvious question in this text is, are you following Jesus at a distance? And, and we don't like to get too close, right? Because following Jesus invites trouble. We think to ourselves, well, wait a second, Jesus said, follow me. He didn't say how close I had to follow him. We can keep, a, we can keep our distance, a comfortable distance, because we dare not follow Jesus too closely. We don't want to do that. We, we don't want to be considered one of those Jesus freaks. We don't want to be considered one of those Bible thumpers. We certainly don't want to be one of those hypocrites. So we follow Jesus just like Peter does, because following him too closely invites Trouble. Now, we've all been where Peter is right now. He's trying to fit into the world where he does not belong. And dear friends, I just want to take a moment. I just want to encourage you to pick up your pace a little bit to follow Jesus. Don't, don't, don't walk. Run to him. Don't lallygag. Run and wrap your arms around him. Don't let him go. Look, guys, he's all you got. And he's the only thing that matters. He's the only person who matters. All this other stuff that you see is going away very, very soon. It's interesting, isn't it? When, when we try to keep one foot in the kingdom of God and, and the other foot in the world like Peter's doing right now. I mean, some of these men that Peter's yakking it up with, these, these are the very men that are going to uh, sp spit on Jesus. They're going to beat Jesus. They're going to slap him. 
And we all know that the dark world doesn't tolerate the light. Look what happens here in verse 54. He's warming himself by the fire. So Peter doesn't only follow Jesus at a distance. He wants to follow Jesus at a distance and be comfortable at the same time. We had a phrase, preachers have a phrase, and this is the phrase, that'll preach. <laughs> Y'all could write a sermon on that, right? That'll preach. We want to be, we, we want to follow Jesus, but we want to be comfortable too. So Peter's true identity is found out here. Why is that? Well, he's easily recognizable. Once again, he has a big mouth. Peter doesn't realize that the same fire that's keeping him warm is the same fire that's lighting up his face for everyone to see. And from here, Matthew's gospel tells us that the Sanhedrin, they take Jesus from the home of, of Annas and they walk across the courtyard to Caiaphas. So now we're at, at Caiaphas's home. Verse 55. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they couldn't find any. So the, the reference here to the whole Sanhedrin, it doesn't necessarily mean that the, all 71 members of the, San, of the Sanhedrin were there, but that they were united. United in what? Look at verse 55. They were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death. So in other words, Jesus had already been charged as guilty. So question, where's the arraignment? Where's the formal reading of the criminal charges brought against Jesus? What crime has Jesus committed here? Well, the religious leaders have already predetermined that Jesus is guilty. He deserves capital punishment. And now they're just going to make some kind of effort here to go through these legal proceedings as a formality. They just want to make sure, they just really want to make themselves look good. However, we've got several problems. Number one, they need to charge Jesus with something before they can formally convict him. And then secondly, look at verse 55. <laughs> they can't find any. They couldn't find anything to charge Jesus with. So, what do these religious leaders, the AKA, the, the spiritual mob, what, what do they do when they can't find truth? Well, you scheme and you pay and you bribe people to lie. Look at this, verse 56. For many were giving false testimony against him, and the testimonies did not agree. So, there are so many things going wrong at this moment um, during this, quote-unquote, this Jewish trial. Jewish law states that the Sanhedrin are not allowed to initiate criminal charges. They could only investigate them. And yet, here we see the Sanhedrin, once again, they're acting like prosecutors. These men are not gathering facts. This really is nothing but a modern-day witch hunt. Look at verse 57. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him. So pause. According to the law, according to Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy chapter 17, it was necessary to have at least two witnesses for a murder trial. And these witnesses, they must give honest, consistent evidence at every detail. The slightest inconsistency will discredit them. And not only that, we just, we just talked about the consequences of perjury. So these guys dare not put these witnesses on a real 
stand. So verse 58, this is the witness. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands. And in three days, I will build another not made by hands. Really? These knuckleheads are the best witnesses you can get? And, and evidently, the answer is yes, by the way. It's, it's 2 a.m. in the morning. All these guys say is, we heard? We heard? These guys must have just come from a bar. I mean, where are the eyewitnesses to a crime worthy of crucifixion? And oh, by the way, Jesus never said that he would destroy the temple. Remember what he said in John 2.19? He said, you'd destroy this temple, this temple. And I'm going to raise it up in three days. Now, it is easy to misinterpret Jesus' words there because the disciples, they probably didn't even know what he was talking about. But Jesus said that if you, if you, the pronoun is, is you, it's on them, right? Um, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up again. But what these witnesses do is they, they swap the personal claims, they, they swap the pronouns, and they turn Jesus' claim, if you destroy to... I will destroy. And Jesus never said that. And verse 59 proves it. Yet their testimony did not even agree on this. Literally, the text reads, the testimonies were not equal. They, they, they didn't tally. They didn't match up. So I know this is very hard to believe, uh, to, to get a group of people to, to lie in unison. How many of you have teenagers? These witnesses are jokers. This is, this is clearly a kangaroo court. That, and here's the thing. Jesus hasn't uttered one word yet. Jesus is watching these men lie and scheme, and it's in their lying and their scheming that they're, they're literally hanging themselves with their own rope. Brings us to key point number one. By remaining silent, Jesus proves his innocence. By remaining silent, Jesus proves his innocence. Jesus knows he doesn't need to reply or defend himself. Why is that? Because these men are all liars. There's no need to respond to liars. And guys, the same is true in your own life. Think about it. If Jesus were to respond to these liars, he would give this kangaroo court some kind of legitimacy. Verse 60, then the high priest stood up before them all, and he questioned them. He said, Jesus, don't you have an answer to what all these men, all these liars are testifying against you? So the high priest stands up. Oh, boy. Now we're in trouble. We got the big dog. He's in charge, or he thinks he's in charge. He's got the illusion of being in control, right? So these religious muckety-mucks, they are getting angry. Their frustration rises to an all-time high. They are embarrassed, and now they're mad. They are furious. Just picture how agitated Caiaphas must have been at this point with all these jokers around them just talking and talking and talking and talking. And Jesus doesn't, he doesn't say a word. Caiaphas doesn't even realize that Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy at this very moment. Look at this. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. He, so that's Jesus, Jesus was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. 
like a lamb, right? The lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers. Once again, Jesus did not open his mouth. So Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy by his silence. That's so cool. So cool. So back to our text in Mark here, verse 61. But Jesus kept silent. He did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him. Are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed one? Matthew's gospel says this. He says, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Messiah, the son of God. This is the highest oath that a priest can place under a Jew. A person placed under this kind of oath in a Jewish court had to answer. Now keep in mind, this is a kangaroo court. It's not a legitimate court. So the irony continues here. Caiaphas is so mad. He is so arrogant. He has the audacity to think about this now. He has the audacity to demand truth from Jesus while he himself smears Jesus with lies. However, this question is the first legitimate question that they've had. Verse 61, he says, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Now, the Jews, they, they kind of sort of like to talk in code. That word blessed there, it, it's called a circumlocution. And that's a big $2 word for saying it's an indirect way of speaking. What the Jews did is they would replace specific names of God with others to avoid saying or misusing a sacred name of God. So what Caiaphas is, is asking here really is two separate questions. Number one, are you the Messiah? And number two, are you the Son of God? Now, it's not a crime to say you're the Messiah. But the second part of Caiaphas' question, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? That is diabolically genius just a genius question. Why? Because blasphemy is a capital crime. Blasphemy, it's any sort of speech or action that shows contempt for God. Blasphemy, it's it, using, just so you guys know, using God's name in a casual way is blasphemy. So when, you, when someone says, oh my, o OMG, right? When someone says that, that is blasphemy. It's, you're taking God's holy name in a very casual way. Well, since Caiaphas couldn't produce any helpful testimony at this point, what he did is he, he threw a line out to Jesus, and he wanted to test Jesus. He wanted to see if, if Jesus would indict himself. Jesus, of course, knows what Caiaphas is doing. But if Jesus, here's the thing, if Jesus doesn't answer this question, the Jews will have to find another way to kill, to kill him. And that's going to take too long. So what Jesus is really doing at this point, he's submitting to the Father's will, and Jesus knows that he must die via crucifixion around 3 o'clock this very day. He has to die as a criminal. He has to die outside the walls of Jerusalem. He has to die on a cross as the other lambs are being slaughtered for Passover in Jerusalem, because all of that is prophesied in the Old Testament. So what does Jesus do? Jesus answers in verse 62. He says, I am. 
And you're going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Ego me. I am. Jesus says, guilty as charged, Caiaphas. So Jesus sees this softball question. He knocks it out of the park. And, and, and here, Jesus is no longer hiding his identity as the Son of God. And the reason that he does that is because there's no crowd to force him to be king anymore. So just picture this. Jesus looks directly into the eyes of the, the quote-unquote, the most powerful religious man in Israel. And he says, I am. I am. To both of those questions, Caiaphas, Jesus replies via the Old Testament, Psalm 110.1, he quotes this. He says, this is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. You sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So we see God the Father. He tells God the Son to sit down while the Father takes care of business with humanity. And at this moment, Jesus is claiming authority that is much greater than the courts, much greater than Caiaphas himself. So instead of falling down on his face and worshiping, just imagine Caiaphas starting to laugh here. Jesus goes on. He says, verse 62, you will see. We're going to see what, Jesus? Jesus is saying, you're going to see me be the judge of your soul, Caiaphas. I, Jesus is saying, look, I am the son of God. I came from heaven and I'm going back to heaven. And oh, by the way, I'm going to judge you. This is not the last time we're going to meet Caiaphas. We're going to meet again in the courtroom of heaven and everything is going to be sorted out then. Jesus continues. He says, not only that, you're going to see me coming with the clouds of heaven. Clear reference here to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Uh, look at this, though. I, I wanted to share this, this verse. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. The apostle John quotes more Old Testament. He says, look, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Even those who pierced him. So, how does Jesus' answer, how does that go over with Caiaphas? Verse 63, so the high priest tore his robes and he says, why do we still need witnesses? So Caiaphas, he just loses his mind. Whatever composure he had, whatever restraint that he was trying to, to retain, it's, it's gone. He loses his cool at this moment and the kangaroo court, the theatrics continue. So key point number two for today. As a Christian, especially a Christian leader, you are to never, never, never lose your temper. As a Christian, especially a Christian leader, you are never, never, never to lose your temper. When you lose your temper, especially in front of the people that you're trying to minister to, you're, you're just going to lose all sorts of respect, and you'll never get it back, ever. So... High priest gets mad. He tears his robe. The law says you can't tear, tear your robe unless you hear a blasphemous statement. However, Jesus didn't blaspheme God. 
It's Caiaphas who's the one who's guilty of blasphemy. And the reason he's guilty is because he did not worship Jesus at that moment. So we've got a lot of irony here. It's getting thick in this, well, I was going to say this courtroom. It's not the courtroom, but in, in his house. So it's Caiaphas who insults God by not recognizing that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And he goes on to say, he says, why do we still need witnesses? Now, wait a second. How many witnesses did Jesus have for his defense? There wasn't one legitimate witness during this entire circus, not one. Verse 64, Caiaphas continues, he says, you've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. So the irony continues here, as it's Caiaphas who is breaking the Jewish laws and not Jesus, because as the high priest, he is also the chief judge. He cannot initiate the charges. He can only investigate them. We've talked, we said that many, many times. Doesn't happen here. Caiaphas is the judge. He is the jury. He gets all of his little mini-me's and all of his yes-men to join him. So why did they sentence Jesus to death at that moment? Because of Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. This is, this is God's law. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The whole community is to stone him. Now, in any ordinary trial and under normal circumstances, the Sanhedrin, what they would do is they would follow an orderly process at this point. They would, they would cast votes one at a time starting with the younger members um, so that the, the younger men are not influenced by the older ones. A scribe would then carefully count the votes, but not on this night. Every Jewish law of jurisprudence is broken. Every law. And think about this. It had to be. Every law had to be broken because there's no way that mankind can sentence God to death without breaking every single law possible. Verse 64, they all condemned him as deserving death. So it's at this moment we see the unanimous decision of the dark hearts of these so-called religious men. And really they just turn into a mob at this point. Mob rules. If a, if a criminal was convicted of a capital crime, the, the Sanhedrin, what they were supposed to do is meet the following day to confirm that judgment. This law was in place to prevent any mistakes. It also allowed time for more witnesses to come forward. It was to slow the whole judicial process down. They, they didn't want to make any rash decisions here, especially in murder trials. But not here, not now, not with the Son of God. They want God dead. And they want him dead now. Verse 65, then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him and to beat him, saying prophesy. And then the temple servants also took him and slapped him. So shouldn't surprise you at this point, all these men breaking more of their own Jewish laws the law stated that judges were to be humane. They were to be kind to the condemned. I mean, think about it. These men are physically assaulting Jesus. That carries its own fines and punishments. You can't go around just beating, beating on people. And yet these men do it. And not only that, let me remind you here. These men, 
that are spitting on Jesus, that are beating Jesus, that are slapping God. Guys, this, th these are members of the Sanhedrin. These men are the holiest of the holy. <laughs> they are the most reserved. They are the most righteous. They are the most holy of all Israel. These are the men running the country. They're making the laws. They're upholding the laws. Pause. Has anything changed in 2,000 years? How are the best and the brightest running this great country? How are they treating Jesus? How are they treating Christians? Verse 65 is nothing but decadence. And once again, Jesus fulfills more prophecy. This is absolutely amazing. Prophet Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. Now let me ask you something. If someone spits in your face, you're going to shield yourself, correct? Mm -hmm. Jesus did not do that. He endured it. For the Jews, the act of spitting was the most detestable form of a personal insult. And during all this brutality, no word of protest came from the lips of Jesus. How would you feel if Jesus chose to act like us? Meaning that he decided he was going to spit back. That he was going to unleash his fury and he was going to punch them in the face. Would that change your mind about Jesus? Yeah. But see, he did not do that. I mean, can you imagine being blindfolded and then being punched in the face and in the back of the head by a group of men not knowing where these blows are coming from repeatedly? And yet Jesus took all of it. We know this because 1 Peter 2.23 says, When Jesus was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Look what he did. He says, but. But Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. There are several lessons to learn and apply from, from today's scripture passage uh, you know, we, we touched on the, the cost of following Jesus too closely, along with the remorse of, of following him at a distance. You know, the, the rhythm in, in which you walk with the Lord is, is something that I would encourage you to ponder and pray about this week. Um, are you too far ahead? Are you tired? Maybe, just maybe, you're doing some things that he never asked you to do. Or maybe you're lagging behind. Maybe you're caught up in the world. So I, I just would encourage you to seek the Lord's face and, and see what he says about following him closely. Really, the main application for today, though, is, is it's a reminder of how Jesus physically paid our sin debt. We start, we're really starting to see the reality of what sin looks like. For you and I, this was a spiritual transaction, right? We call this the great exchange. The holy one for the hellion. We've got the guiltless over here for the guilty. The just 
for the unjust, the incorruptible for all of us who are corruptible, the immortal for the mortal, and the righteous for the unrighteous. So make no doubt about it, there is a spiritual transaction that takes place to save our wretched souls. But let's not forget about the physical. Let's not forget about the pragmatic aspect of salvation because this this concept of Jesus being the Lamb of God, it literally means that God the Father slay him. This method of substitutionary atonement, this, this idea that Jesus took my place, it means that Jesus stood and physically accepted our punishment. Guys, that should be me and you receiving that punishment, not Jesus. Now, I'm not trying to guilt you. I just, it's a reminder of really an overwhelming joy and gratitude for what the Lord Jesus has done. And not only for us, but for the rest of the Verde Valley. Not just, right? So, so here's my encouragement to you. Go share your joy with someone in the Verde Valley this week. Go tell them about your Jesus. Go tell them what he did. Do you think the Verde Valley needs this Jesus? Yeah. So I want to encourage you. I'll keep, I'll keep encouraging you until I have to buy more blue invitation cards. <laughs> to take one invitation card that's in the foyer, you stick it in your wallet, and you pray over that thing. And you see what kind of God intersection, what kind of divine disruption he will bring to your life. And then you give that card to that person and you simply share what you've learned today. It's just awesome. Father in heaven, well, first and foremost, we need to ask forgiveness for our sins. Because we read a text like this and we realize that we've taken your grace for granted. And that we're too hyper-focused on me, myself, and I. So, Father, please forgive us for our sins. Um, I pray, Father, that this is not just head knowledge this morning. That you indeed would give us God intersections and divine disruptions for all of those that you have ready. Those, uh, uh, the people that you have in our backyard to hear the truth. There are so many people who, who are crying out for truth and grace and grace and truth, and they don't know where to find it. And, and the most remarkable thing is that you've given us, you've given us a, a group of imperfect people the truth and the grace to spread this amazing message called the gospel. So Father, I pray that we make you smile by the spreading of your word this week. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.